0: The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please. Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her triggered to transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's MindfulMamaMentor.com slash retreat. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 120. Today, we're talking to Bob Stahl about how to stay calm in the storm. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you are thriving, when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self awareness in their daily lives to take family and life to a new level of peace and cooperation. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course, and I'm the mom of two girls ages 8 and 11. Welcome back. Hey, so glad you're here. So glad to connect with you again today. It's uh, a rainy May morning for me and I'm happy to bring you this wisdom of Bob style. He's so cool. I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. We're going to talk about calming the rush of panic and Bob's like this amazing, like wise uncle. And he's going to talk to you about, we're going to talk about mindfulness in a a really deep and important way. He founded the mindfulness-based stress reduction programs at Dominican Hospital, O'Connor Hospital, and El Camino Hospital in California. He's also co-author of a mindfulness-based stress reduction workbook, Living With Your Heart Wide Open, Calming the Rush of Panic, and a mindfulness-based stress reduction workbook for anxiety. And you can find more about him at mindfulnessprograms.com. But he is a really deep and wise person, and we're going to talk about the power of mindfulness. And for me, this is really apropos at this moment. But first, I'll tell you why, but let me tell you about some of the takeaways you're going to get as we listen to this conversation about how – Meditation helps us meet the preciousness and fragility of life, right? How it helps us work with this, with change and impermanence, really important stuff. How it helps us with anxiety by really interrupting rumination and giving you more options to deal with it, right? And we also talk about this idea of taking responsibility for ourselves and taking responsibility for our pain. And the idea that if we can get ourselves caught, we can get ourselves uncaught, right? So cool. This power of sort of radical responsibility, which is so cool. So why this is so important to me now? Because I just yesterday finished my wrapped up and heard the the takeaways and the changes from the women who had just gone through the last round of the Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group. And this is my group coaching program. And it's just I feel like my heart busts open every time that I do this because the power of women coming together, sisterhood, and the vulnerability and the power of sharing and hearing other people and really deeply knowing and feeling you're not alone as you go through these changes, and then seeing people have more joy, be able to connect more in the world, to be able to improve their relationships with their their kids and, and their partner, and to be able to create these really solid foundations for everything in their life. It's just, it rocks my world. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of us think like coaching, like, what is that? That's not for me. But I invite you to consider that maybe that's just, an old way of thinking you know like (laughs) we have this one wild and precious life and if we're irritable with our kids you know if we're snapping and we're unhappy if we're not thriving you know you can do something about it we can take actions and you can get support and it's not it's not a crazy thing to do in fact Many of us do, and the power of coming together with a mentor and with fellow sisters on the journey who are in the same place you are, it really makes all the difference in the world and being able to take a leap and make some important changes in your life. And it's funny because sometimes some one of the women said like, oh, I kind of thought like I would be a whole different person, but I'm actually more me Than I ever was before, and I'm loving and accepting me. Oh, wow! You know that just (laughs) just rocks me. It's so amazing. So I'm sharing with this with you now because my next group is starting up. Actually, I have two groups. I'm gonna have an evening group. Yay! Finally for you, working mamas. I have room for twelve women. And if you're listening to this as it podcast comes out in real time you know you just have a couple days to join just have a couple days and actually when you do this time you're going to join the the daily practice program which is my 28 day immersion for yoga and mindfulness for self care and you'll get to go through it with a whole bunch of other people and you'll get to do this group coaching program that lasts over 5 months we go all through the summer and we meet And we make these, we have, I have a system where we do these step-by-step changes, but it's also super, super personal to you. So anyway, before I dive into this conversation with Bob and hear about this wisdom, I invite you to check out mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching. And if this, what I'm saying is sounding like, yes, like there's a way, connect with me. Let's figure it out. Let's connect. Let's really make that deeper connection, make those leaps together. I would love that. So com slash group coaching. Have any questions, email me at punter at com. And now on to this conversation. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad you could be here today.
1: Thank you, Hunter. It's nice to be on.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I'm fascinated to talk to you because you have a long history with teaching mindfulness and studying meditation and things like that. And I'm curious as to your story. Like, how did this all come about in your own life? Thank you. That's a
1: longer story,
0: but
1: <laughs> I'll get to the heart of it. But, um, Actually, the early roots of what brought me to practice was experiences of death, and uh, I'll never forget the first time that I realized that I was going to die, and I was four years old. And it was just this knowing that things are not going to last. And by the time I was nine, I had lost a younger brother that I shared a room with, my best friend who I played with every day after school. She lived across the street, and then my grandfather who lived downstairs. And this led to a time of uh, of deep Grief, of course, and confusion and despair. And most of my schooling, early schooling, junior and high school and part of elementary school, is kind of in a blur. And of course, this was this time of the 60s and the Beatles were introduced and they were growing their hair long and the times were changing. And so there was a lot of things going on in the 60s that led even to more confusion. So eventually, I got into a college in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Undergraduate school, and there I majored in skiing, getting drunk, and getting high, and trying to have girlfriends.
0: That sounds yeah. like my friend's experience at, in Vermont <laughs> at college, too. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, yeah, and after two years, I flunked out. Oh no. And then I was remitted back on warning, and my mother begged me, Is there something that would interest you in school? And I knew that I was not interested in reading, writing, arithmetic, science, history, even though they're wonderful subjects. But I was just so lost, and, and I had done all of that, and there was, there was just no interest. And somehow she said, well, look in the course catalog. And I saw on the course catalog, there was something that perked my interest, and it was called the Wisdom of the East. I couldn't pronounce the words after it with a colon. It said Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I didn't even know what that was. But the East rang a bell to me because growing up, my family was very fond of, of going to Chinese restaurants and eating Chinese food. And I, I mean, my early experiences was I just loved being there and loved the food, even like the art and the, the pictures of the Buddhas and the smells and the the sense of, I felt a sense of serenity. In, and I knew that was from the East. And so I said, well, um, <laughs> that was my interest in dementia. That's how I got into that class. And I said, well, I'll check this out. And, and I'll never forget walking into my first class there and I had a professor that was there that was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position
0: Oh my goodness! <laughs> <like
1: this before. laughs> and he captivated me his presence his the way that he was so embodied in his life and so he asked us to begin to read the Tao Te Ching bei La Tzu the way of life it's means from Taoism and, and I started reading this book of very small book of 81 different wise sayings epigrams and and it just spoke to me deeply. I couldn't believe that someone had thought about life in this way. I was never exposed to this type of literature. And I was just amazed. And I got so deep into this book called The Way of Life, the Tao Te Ching. And, and Bill Jackson, this professor, like just how he was as an example. like I realized at some point that he knows something. And I wasn't sure what he knew, but I knew this. I knew that I wanted to know what he knew. Because how he was living his life was very impressive. It very deeply impressed my heart. And so this was my gateway into meditation practice. And a few years later I ended up graduating with very good grades, majoring in philosophy and religion and sociology, and I ended up going to graduate school in Northern California, where I was introduced to Vipassana uh, meditation, insight meditation, early Buddhism, and have been deeply involved in Vipassana ever since. And there's a an earlier period in my life where I lived in a Theravada Forest Monastery, a Burmese monastery for eight and a half years that really was a powerful time to deepen practice. I was there as a lay person, not as a monk, though I had ordained temporarily for a very short period of time, but lived mostly in the monastery as a, a lay person, taking care of the monks and studying and practicing very intensively meditation. Wow. Okay, long, windy road <laughs> After leaving the monastery, I got involved teaching mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress reduction and Vipassana meditation retreats and been doing this since then.
0: Wow. Wow. So if you could, if you could kind of paint a picture of the ways that you, what you struggled with before you immerse yourself so deeply into meditation and mindfulness, and then what it has brought you after, how would you describe that?
1: Well, you know, I think the, the deep deep pains was the sense of loss, separation, grief. And, and I, was, I think because of that, I, I was probably not your regular kid on the block. Mm-hmm. And so due to whatever causes and conditions, I, I was in an area where I was bullied and picked on a lot. I was actually one of the only Jews in a, in a non-Jewish area. I remember going home when I was five years old asking my parents what a kike meant. And so mm-hmm. I experienced a lot of challenges in those times and you know wanting to fit in like other kids yet I was told that I was different and also of course I'd lost a brother and a best friend and a grandfather and trying to figure out what is this life in the 1960s and so you know there was a lot of earlier deep pain and like you know who am I what is this and also just really looking at my own sense of um, where do I find the sense of wanting to fit in and feeling alienated or separated or disconnected. And I think part of my meditation journey has really been realizing that you can't find that approval outside of you needs to be found inside of you. That's been a very deep learning as well, but learning how to meet life, the fragility, the preciousness of this life, uh, because we know it can take a turn at any moment at any time.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. That's one of the things we really like about the teachings of the Dharma, you know, that the, you know, there's, a, there's you know, this, this actually practices on the mindfulness of death and practices on really beginning to meet impermanence and how do we begin to work with change, with um, the unreliable nature of things and learn how to go with life rather than trying to control it or fight it.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that you had this amazing... Very unique experience of you know so much death as a young person, and and it clearly shaped you in so many ways. It's interesting. I mean, because I I have I share a fascination with death. I am sitting in a room actually right now that has a, a number of skulls in it that I've painted in my journey in painting and looking at death. And and my mother is a hospice nurse, so it's always been something that's been kind of like in my life. And. You know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job, congratulations, you're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch. And I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Rituals Essentials for Women is USP verified so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female-founded B Corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's essential for women, 18 plus, is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com mindful for 25% off. So how do you think it has helped you? So you're saying that your meditation journey has helped you with how to meet life and see the preciousness and fragility of life in a day-to-day way. Do you think it has changed your, the way you meet life in a, in a very day-to-day way?
1: Absolutely. But also just to say, yeah, my wife is a hospice nurse and chaplain, so please share that.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. man. Less the hospice through. nurses. Oh my goodness.
1: Right. We actually met through a hospice. That's how we found each other. But that's another story. But yes, this practice informs my everyday life. And, you know, the heart of this practice of mindfulness, why do we practice mindfulness? So from the Buddhist tradition, and from you know the teachings in the dharma it's about living with greater peace greater ease to um, mindfulness is a practice of the body the mind the heart to understand about suffering and its causes and the path to great freedom and so i've been deeply involved with these practices for many years and so there is the formal practices of mindfulness where we might be doing sitting meditation and, and other bringing mindfulness to different day-to-day activities so there's a practice of being stationary and doing more of a formal guidance sitting meditation practice, but there's the informal practices of bringing mindfulness in our life. But these teachings are pointing to how to live our lives with more peace, with more freedom, with less suffering. And so it's not limited to just sitting on the cushion. The practice is our whole life. You could say in many ways that the, our life is the meditation hall and what comes up in our life is our practice. And in particular, if indeed one is interested in lessening suffering then we have to include our whole life in this because there's things in our life that come up that get us activated Mm -hmm. things that pull us off our center things that we hold on to and grasp we want to keep forever there's other things we just want to push away and have nothing to do with there's times where we're not seeing clearly into what's happening and so the practice is really how it informs the day-to-day life is to be aware in my day-to-day life with my interpersonal relationships and else, everything else is where are the places where I get stuck? Where are the places where I get caught? Where am I holding on? Where am I pushing away? Where am I not seeing clearly? This is the meditation practice that's brought into all of life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that when, In general, in life, when we come to these places where we get stuck and and we want to grasp and hold on to things, maybe before any exposure to mindfulness or any way of dealing with it, it seems like sort of the general way of dealing with those things is like either like it comes down to kind of two questions, like what's wrong with you or this or what's wrong with me, right? And from the perspective of mindfulness, we look at it in a really different way, right? Right.
1: That's right. We're actually learning to take responsibility to our pain, for our pain. We're taking responsibility that we can begin, you know, if we begin to get ourselves caught, we can begin to get ourselves uncaught. And so actually Pema Chodron, in Tibetan teaching has this beautiful teaching about, you know, for people that are spiritual warriors, people who want to know the truth, people who want to lessen suffering, things that are considered to be bad news by many people, such as anger, sadness, fear, jealousy, shame, confusion, fear, and so forth. For many people in the worldly sense, this is bad news. But for those that are spiritual warriors, for those who want to know the truth, those who want to suffer less, it's not bad news. It's actually good news because it's showing you Yes, she says sometimes with terrifying clarity, exactly where you are stuck and where you actually need to bring more attention to rather than less to begin to take responsibility for ourselves. This is one of the wonderful things I like about the teachings within mindfulness is this invitation to see for ourselves with our own experience and that we and there's also a powerful teaching that our mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own thoughts. And so we're beginning to take responsibility for our minds and our thoughts and how that we can create our own heavens and our own hells, and we can begin to work on ourselves in a powerful way, a transformative way.
0: I love that that idea of we take responsibility for ourselves it's really interesting because it's it's very it's an idea that's come up twice in my day today and I just finished working with a client who I coached with for a year and she brought up that term responsibility like taking responsibility for her well-being and through the practices of mindfulness and I I really think that that idea of responsibility is such a good one because then it's less about sort of blaming others and things like that and and in the work that I do with parents I sometimes I think of it like gosh like it's interesting because you are actually a person who's gone into a forest retreat for like eight years in practice and so occasionally I kind of make the joke that like parenting is like better than Ten years on a mountain retreat practicing. I, I agree. I'm
1: a father of two.
0: <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> so, oh, this is wonderful, Bob. We we can compare. You're the perfect person to compare. The, for the, us. the advanced
1: practice of getting married and having children. I'll
0: yes. Tell you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. So, you went off to the forest monastery, I assume, before you had kids.
1: Yeah.
0: And I assume you found lots of places you were stuck. To work with oh,
1: there. Yeah. Their, their kids are great teachers and also a partner.
0: Yeah. And that you have two kids and they showed you lots of places where you were stuck to. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. They continue to.
0: Wow. <laughs> How would you say that your mindfulness has informed your parenting and your journey as a father, as a husband?
1: Yeah. It's been quite a ride and so grateful for it. They have this such a human experience to have children and to be a partner and to show up, to show up when it's hard, to show up when it's good, to show up and such a powerful practice. And I'm so grateful for it. And you know, you're seeing yourselves, your own shortcomings. I remember once yelling at my oldest son to stop yelling at my younger son and then wondering where he learned to yell. (laughs) And uh, so, ah, humble pie humble teaching so there will be times you know that will fuck up and so you know this is a very powerful teaching of walking back in that room after you've just shamed your child and say to them i'm sorry yeah because due to my own conditioning my own fear my own pain or just you know i just want to have a cup of coffee be left alone for a minute so the practice of working being with children is a practice of constantly letting go and to be with what's there. But there's great rewards because it's just marvelous. And um, I've learned so much. And, you know, particularly as I understand from the practices of mindfulness, that our identity is composed of the conditioning that has happened before it. And so, Mm -hmm. so primary in our early, early years the developmental experiences that begin to form our sense of identity and personality are incredibly important. And if we've been brought up in places where we've been shamed constantly, made to feel small, made to feel inadequate, these formative experiences inform potentially a lifetime of such sense of lack of self-esteem, of unworthiness. I remember once working with a woman recently that was told by her mother that I wish I never had you. Mm. That's a very powerful statement, of course. And um, this woman's done a lot of tremendous healing work to, in, in some ways, to give birth to herself to recognize her own beauty within this world. But we have strong conditioning that was created through our upbringings. So our responsibility as parents—actually, I love John Cabot's and Mila. Kabat-Zinn, husband and wife, they wrote a very beautiful book called Everyday Blessings, The Art of Mindful Parenting. And John, of course, is the founder of Mindfulness Space Stress Reduction. But in this book, Everyday Blessings, they speak about three very important qualities to bring up our children. One is acceptance. The other is empathy, which I think for many of us, we can understand. And the third one is a very, was an unusual term at first until I read more about what they meant it was called sovereignty and that means to honor the sovereign nature of our children and when you think about it when babies and infants we are so sovereign in the sense that we have no sense of shame or, or self diminishment. If, if I'm in front of a group of a thousand people and I have to poop, I'm just gonna poop and I could care less what anyone else thinks. If I wanna laugh or fart or eat or cry. Like, babies just so, so much just being baby and that's just what they do. And of course, we get civilized, we get grown up, and we learn to, you know, you, you only poop here and you do this here. And, you know, that's probably some good reasons behind all that, of course, too. But at the same time, we can get smashed. We can begin to lose our sovereign nature. I remember growing up, I used to have an uncle that used to think it was funny when I'd go over to my grandmother's house to go get, and my grandmother knew I liked peanuts, and I'd go get some, to be a bowl of peanuts, and he would always make an announcement, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. And after a while, I just felt so ashamed. Like, I didn't want to go to that bowl anymore. I didn't want my uncle to, to make fun of me. There's so many things that happen in our early childhood development, Shaming or not being included, and so many things that we, we become, you know, partially the walking wounded. And so the importance of of helping to preserve our child's sovereignty, as well as perhaps beginning to learn and develop our own sovereign nature that yeah. perhaps we have lost through these years of of of, our, of being shamed or humiliated, not made to feel special or important.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that. When we look at kind of the prevailing kind of styles of parenting, I think the sort of prevailing authoritarian style really totally disregards our children's sovereignty. It doesn't see them as whole people and expects them to just jump up and do what we say as soon as we say it, even though we don't expect that from anyone else in our lives. And then the other style, you know, like the opposite swing of that pendulum is where some parents are afraid of falling into that harmful authoritarian pattern so they don't own their own sovereignty, right? So they don't create those healthy boundaries and and those healthy boundaries for their children for themselves. So it's interesting. I like that idea of sovereignty kind of as a, a... thing to bring up into into parenting so he said that parenthood and raising children is a practice of constantly letting go what did you have to let go of as you raise your children
1: that's a beautiful question and there's a lot to it but you know i think you see my life wasn't just about me anymore
0: Mm. Mm
1: -hmm. it's about i might want to do something but my child has need and maybe not be able to take care of themselves and so the so really being you know like the letting go of joining in with the intimacy of being with another human being that is incredibly vulnerable or scared or angry or sad or like how like how do i learn to be with Mm -hmm. someone growing up and finding their identity and how do i as best i can not take away their shame and of course inevitably due to my humanness at times have you know given shame and and then coming back and recognizing that and coming back and acknowledging it and we wouldn't have it any other way. I'm just so grateful that, um, you know, we had children and they actually, they're now at this point uh, 26 and 21 and have, have flown the coop and they're doing their own grand tour of life and they actually both just came back last night and we're just so thrilled to have them back home and, and so, you know, it's quite a ride to raise children, see them come into adults, and and they're beautiful young men and Mm. and see this development. But yeah, like through the years, there's a a lot of um, letting go. And as a friend of mine once said, he said to me, it was actually a very wise statement. He goes, I hope your kids completely destroy you. (laughs) What he meant was, destroy the sense of selfishness, destroy the sense of, you're here for your kids. It doesn't mean that we can't take care of ourselves at times either, of course, and and get breaks and so forth. But my practice of trying to practice unconditional love, how do I learn that? And I may not want to go to the Little League game because I have other things I'd rather do. But this is important and to go and then to really join and to enjoy it and to be, you know. So anyways, it's a wonderful practice of letting go that has so many deep rewards.
0: I think there's a lot of like letting go of our agendas, right? And our preconceptions and things like that. And you talk about this idea of unconditional love. And I think that this is something that we aspire to so much as parents. And we all think we love our kids unconditionally. But I think that sometimes our kids don't experience our love as unconditional because of how hard it is for parents to be with children when children are having all that bad news all that anger fear pain etc and so we you know many many of us like push our children away in those moments and then their children don't experience our love as unconditional but as i love you when you're happy i love you when you're doing well <laughs> i love you you know so has your practice helped you and i think this talks directly probably to a lot of the writing. You've talked about coping with panic and anxiety and things like that. So dealing with these difficult feelings in ourselves and in our children, can you talk to me a little bit more about that in the practice of mindfulness?
1: Can you reframe that that again?
0: Yeah, yeah. So our kids have so many difficult feelings, right? They have their fears, their anxieties, their anger. And because parents have so much difficulty handling that or accepting that,
3: I know that raising a Differently Wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
2: Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values?
0: maybe in your own life or how you've been able to be with your kids experience of those strong feelings
1: well i I don't know if this relates to that or not but like my partner my wife she's such a, a wonderful mother a wonderful human being but a really incredible mommy and my boys just adore her Except when they don't. <laughs> it's just like they adore me, except when they don't. But I mean, there's times when like they've, they've just adored her so much. And dad is, he's not as high up on the adornment scale as mom. And so I get to practice not being jealous, or if there is jealousy, to be aware of that and to acknowledge it and to take the upper road that I can still just be there and be loving and and to hold them and that there was room in our relationship for them to love Mummy more than what it appeared to be at the time that was okay with me mm-hmm. and i think that in the long run they saw that i was there with them no matter what and i think that they they felt very secure in both of our loves, mm. that we would be there for them even when they preferred one to another or when they have a temper tantrum and they're, or they're yelling and they're angry and I would hold on to them and said, I'm just going to try to help keep you safe. And if you're angry, you can just, I just want you to support you to be angry and just, just feel your anger and acknowledge it. And yes, you can yell and I'm going to be here with you. And the relationship with pain, I remember one time when my older son was young, we were outside and he fell down some stairs. Fortunately, not a major injury, but it gunked his head, it hurt, he cried. You know, it was, it was a painful moment. And it was so interesting. I remember like a couple of friends running up and one started pulling pull some candy out of his pocket to give to him said, okay, little boy, here, have this. And I said to my friend, please don't give him the candy. Donked his head, it hurt, and, and well, I'll just be here. And then the other friend came by just a few moments later, started making funny faces and trying to make my son laugh. Like, you'll be okay, little boy. Just laugh. Look at me. You'll be okay. And I said to my friend, thanks for trying to make him feel better. Why don't you go on? My son gonked to head it hurt. And so then my, I just sat on the steps with my son. And, my, and he said, Daddy, it really hurts when you, honk, when you bonk your head. And I said, Ben, it does hurt when you bonk your head. And he just cried and he roared and he ranted and said, I'm just going to be with you. And it does hurt. And I'm just right here with you. And he cried. And then gradually in time he stopped crying. And then he looked at me and he said, all right, dad, I'm ready to go now. (laughs) And so then we got in the car and we took off and I never heard him have to reprocess this again. I believe that it was completed at the steps because I honored him with the feelings that he was feeling and let him feel what was there and it got completed, and you can imagine, if we live in such a pain-denying culture, if I let my friend give him that candy bar, if I let my friend make him laugh, and then he would begin to learn gradually in time that how I deal with my pain, whether it's physical, mental, or emotional, is to go eat or to go watch something, so that I don't have to feel the feelings. But then, you, of course, we know what happens when there's so much suppressed. Emotional feelings and don't know what to do with it. And so, wanting also to help to work with my children to become emotionally healthy, to acknowledge the feelings that they're feeling. Now, I realize now with the story, I've deviated greatly from the unconditional love. But, anyways, here we are.
0: No, you're talking exactly about it because you were there for him, regardless of he was angry and in pain and miserable, right? Like your friends were saying don't feel that feeling. I'm too uncomfortable with you feeling that feeling. So here have something sweet, right? And you're saying, whatever the conditions, I love you and I can accept you. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that story. I really appreciate you sharing it with us. So you've written about mindfulness with anxiety and calming panic and things like that. How does mindfulness help us deal with anxiety? And and what, what are healthy ways to be with those feelings in ourselves. Yeah.
1: Well, there's a few different ways. And, you know, one is, and probably the most important, is to actually become aware that you are actually experiencing anxiety or panic or fear. Because prior to that being mindful of it, you are most likely just completely lost in it and perseverating and ruminating, catastrophizing. But once you become aware, you've kind of broken that cycle briefly. Like, oh, here, here's anxiety. So the mindfulness can actually put, it can interrupt the rhumative or the catastrophizing cycle of things. This is very important to begin to interrupt this because you're just a sinking ship going down. But once you become aware that you're going down, you have some more resources. Now that you're aware, you have more options to potentially work with it in a more constructive way rather than the way that is not productive, potentially destructive. So uh, the quality of mindfulness itself interrupts that cycle. And now that I'm aware, for example, if I'm holding tightly the steering wheel and I'm right knuckling, I'm I'm just getting stressed out and anxious on the highway, once I become aware I'm holding tightly, I can release the grip. So there's a very practical element that once I'm aware, I have some choice. And the, the sense of mindfulness with anxiety, Another quality that can be very helpful is curiosity's investigation. What's actually going on here that's activating this? That I want to get curious about it. I want to begin to investigate this. And so even the quality of investigation and curiosity is very different than being lost in the rumination, the catastrophizing of what's there. And we may discover that as we become interested in it, we begin to learn about it, and perhaps that can begin to abate our anxiety. Now, there's some, also some physiological things in the mindfulness practice that can be also very helpful, such as when you see that you're anxious, often with anxiety, your breath is more irregular, it's rapid. And so by working with regulating the breath will bring a sense of of, of more calmness. And so sometimes we'll suggest to do diaphragmatic breathing or breathing from the abdomen, breathing normally and naturally and feeling the belly expanding on an inhalation and contracting on an exhalation. As we begin to regulate our breath, naturally the body becomes more back into balance, and that can potentially help to curb some of the anxiety. That's why sometimes we'll say that the breath can be helpful. But I also think it's very helpful to begin to understand what's actually fueling and driving the anxiety to begin to bring investigation and inquiry. Mm. And there's also another sense that's, I think, very important of the heart, of, of the qualities of compassion, of kindness, and particularly of connection. For most of us, fear is also around separation, not being connected, and so opening into the web of life, opening into, even as I breathe this air, it's actually an incredible gift from the plant world. Mm-hmm. And our exhalation and reciprocation is our gift back to the plant world, that we are part of the family of things, that the ground that we're sitting on is holding us, the air that we breathe, that we are part of this world most of the time when we're anxious or scared we've lost that sense of connection and interconnection with the web of life we are separate we are alone and we are disconnected and so sometimes just these practices of the web of life of reconnecting with ourselves with our environment with this world with this universe can be incredibly restoring and you know there's in some ways there's no greater power than love just like light, a candle illuminated in the darkness of the night dispels all the darkness immediately around it, so too love dispels fear, love dispels pain, love dispels separation and disconnection. It's bringing our sense of connection back, this web of life, opening into this heart with compassion. And I know it's not easy when we're in a very anxious cycle, so these practices are our practices that help to train ourselves to come back into the moment, to be with our breath, to honor what's there, to perhaps at times investigate what's fueling and driving that anxiety, and perhaps remembering again this web of life that we are part of the family
0: of things. Mm. There's so much there that you've shared that I, I really love. And it's interesting because as a practitioner and a teacher that you you have so much experience and you also teach mindfulness based stress reduction bringing mindfulness to everyone in in so many ways i'm wondering about what you think bob about the idea you know the the buddhist teaching of that there is no separate self that there is no single sense of self that is separate from everything else that is something that is also changing as well as all the world is also changing you're talking about this idea of this interconnection that we are part of the web of life does that teaching of no separate self do you do you bring that to to your lay audience and do you find that that is helpful for people to to understand some idea of this teaching
1: absolutely because to me this is the most liberative teaching of all of the teachings within the dharma Mm-hmm. And so, but how I present it, I feel is in, in a very practical and understandable way. And all too often in, in Buddhism, there's a kind of a mysticism around the sense of no self. And of course, uh, this is so contrary to the hallmark of Western civilization, declaring, I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. And we're such an individual culture and of course, name and fame and so forth. And but all too often sometimes within the Buddhist literature the, the translations of non-self can leave one kind of confused, perplexed. It's not that clear. And so this is my understanding of it. And it's it's often not talked in this way, but this is what makes the most sense to me. And you know, it's actually a beautiful teaching. Or we actually, I don't know if you'd call it a teaching. It, there's a reference, it's called the, the Lion's Roar. And the Lion's Roar is when the Buddha awakened, when he experienced enlightenment. And is this beautiful kind of exclamation, but someday it's known as the Lion's Roar of, of, of his awakening. And in it, he says that, that he's experienced the unconditioned. And so I want to play off that that if there is indeed an unconditioned, then it points to that there must be a condition. So You experience the unconditioned from the conditioned. And so if we look at conditioning from a Buddhist psychological sense, it's speaking about our story, our narrative, our sense of self. And of course, within the teachings in Buddhist psychology, that the most potent causes of suffering is number one, ignorance or unawareness, and that gives rise to greed and hatred and ignorance, greed and hatred. And, of course, uh, in the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the first is this understanding of suffering, and the second has to do with causes. The causes of suffering is, number one, again, ignorance, but also giving rise to craving. And craving is like kind of like this belief that I can find happiness through sensual delights or through being someone or to feel nothing. And so this is based on this misconception that somehow that I can find happiness and peace outside of me. And this is perhaps why addictive behavior is so strong because a lot of these sensual delights or when you get feelings of being powerful and famous or you wanna just bury yourself and not see anything, you lose your sense of self, particularly with sensual delights or with to be someone This this great pleasure and there's hungering for more. But the thing is, we experience it for a moment, but then it goes away. It goes away. It goes away. It does not last. But that's what the addictive nature is. It's yearning to feel good, to have pleasure, to lose oneself.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so the question I think the Buddha is really looking at, and see, he began to see through these begin to see that if you really want deep happiness, it needs to be discovered inside your own heart. And that these stories that I've been telling, again, we come back to the sense of conditioning, the sense of our story, the sense of our identity. Our identity has, has developed through these years to develop into looking for love in all the wrong places, for looking for sensual delight to be fulfilled. But I just can't get no satisfaction no matter how much I try, I try, I try. And so I think the great discovery is beginning to see that this narrative-based self, this identity, this personality, I believe that the teachings of non-self is seeing through this narrative, seeing through this sense of looking for love elsewhere rather than inside your own heart, that, that to me, this is the very powerful teaching of what it means like breaking through the conditioning. And, of course, the opposite of conditioning, if you look at it, if the roots of all suffering is greed, hatred, and ignorance, the opposites of that of from greed is contentment and ease. The opposite of hatred is the heart, compassion, love, and kindness. The heart of ignorance, the opposite is clarity, Understanding suffering, its causes, and the pathway to freedom, the Four Noble Truth, the great discoveries of the Buddha. And so to me, this non-self is breaking through, seeing through this narrative, this story, these limited definitions of self that have enslaved us.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm it's interesting because as you speak, I'm I'm translating that and into the sense of like our cells as parents and the difficulties and the struggles that we have is that if we can take that moment that you're talking about to pause and kind of notice what is the story that i'm living in right what is this story that i'm telling myself that is causing me so much suffering right lack of understanding maybe in what's really happening wanting things to be a different way all that stuff then as if we can just notice that this is the story that's coming from inside our heads then the possibility for ease and contentment and clarity is there
1: that's right because once we begin to see the stories we can begin to see where we get caught Mm -hmm. where we're holding on where we're pushing away and we can begin to investigate those and and this possibilities of deeper freedom Mm. beginning to see through the stories that enslave us this is the teachings and this is where we can experience deeper and deeper freedom.
0: I love this. Well, I'm I'm so glad I have had this opportunity to talk with you, Bob. I really, really enjoy hearing your wisdom and your experience and your voice. And I encourage everyone to check out. Bob has books, many books that are are wonderful, Living with Your Heart Wide Open, Calming the Rush of Panic, and others. And Bob, how can people reach out to you if they want to find out more about the work you're doing or your anything that you're up to? How can they find you on the, the internet?
1: Yeah, thank you. The, I, I actually have a website. It's uh, mindfulness programs.com so that's a probably easy way to find where I'm doing things and teaching retreats and so forth
0: i would love to come i want to come someday bob let me get out there We'd love to have you <laughs> yay well thank you so much for talking to us okay
1: thank you thank you for the thank you for inviting me and in taking interest in um, this work of of the heart. And so and I'm happy for all of you that are listening to this. May we all find the gateways to our heart in, in a time that we live in such a divided, polarized way. And of course, we're entering into our holiday time, though I don't know when listeners will listen to this, but perhaps peace begins at the dinner table, even with our family or friends that might have voted differently. Like, how can we begin to find our way together? Yes,
0: I love it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bob Style. He's amazing, right? Isn't it amazing that the power, right, the power of mindfulness and and how that practice helps parenting, helps anxiety, loss, so much. It's amazing. So, one, just want to remind you, I we're starting up my group coaching program, Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group. And if you are ready for a sisterhood, you're ready for transformation, you're ready to invest your energy and your time into, into really just it, making those important changes in your life that you are ready to make. I am ready to connect with you and to have the great honor of walking you through this journey with a group of other women. It's so powerful. So if that's for you, please check it out at MindfulMamaMentor.com slash group coaching. That's MindfulMamaMentor.com slash group coaching and if you have any questions about that or if you have any questions about this episode you know you can always email me at Hunter at MindfulMamaMentor.com and I'm wishing you a beautiful wonderful week I'm wishing you peace, I'm wishing you joy I'm wishing you some spaciousness and all of that good stuff. Namaste.